Well, good morning, Gateway family. Good to see you this morning. Find Psalm number 32 this morning. Psalm number 32. We are halfway through our six-month journey in the Psalms already. And over our last several months in the Psalms, we've seen different genres, different types of Psalms. We've seen Psalms that celebrate God's law and point us to the foundation of it in our life, of His Word. We've seen Psalms designed to give us wisdom of how we live out this life that has been set before us. We've seen Psalms like last week that call us to praise God for who He is. We've been responding in praise to God's character this morning in our Psalms. We've seen Psalms that remind us to have confidence in God's care for us, that remind us who God is and what he does for his people. We also have saw several weeks of what we call the lament psalms, the psalms that deal with the sufferings and the pain of life, and how do we respond to the hardships of life. Today we're starting another genre, another type of psalms, and these are what we call the penitential psalms. Now, penitential is probably not a word you use every day, would be my guess. What is a penitent? What is something that's penitential? Well, penitential technically means the expressing of penitence, and that's real helpful, right? So what is penitence then? Penitence, from a worldly definition, is feeling sorrow for having done something wrong. So if you just look up the word penitence in a dictionary, it's going to say you feel sorrow, you feel sadness for having done something wrong. Well, in the Bible, penitence is that, but it's so much more. It is feeling sadness and sorrow for having done something wrong, and then it's dealing with it. It's talking to God. It's confessing our sins to God and receiving forgiveness. There's seven different psalms throughout the book of Psalms that are penitential psalms where the psalmist, the author, feels sad because of sin in his life and then goes to God and confesses his sin and receives forgiveness. We're going to look at three of those penitential psalms today and over the next two weeks. Friends, this is a needed subject for me, and this is a needed subject for you as well. This is a reality check for us, and we saw it two weeks ago when we were in Psalm 90. Did you see it up on the screen? Psalm 90, verse 8, I want to remind us of what we saw just a few weeks ago. Where it says, you, God, have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. If you remember from Psalm 90, which was one of the psalms of lament, it dealt with the problems of life. And one of the problems of life was our mortality, or maybe I should say our, immor- or sorry, our, our, morta- our morality, or our immorality, dealing with our own sinfulness in our life. Now, before we go, we need to make sure we're all on the same page of when we're talking about sin, what we're talking about. What is sin? Sin is disobedience to God. Sin literally means missing the mark. Here's God's standard, and we fall short of God's standard. Now, we miss the mark. We disobey in two ways. There's two big categories of sin, if you will. We call some sins of commission, sins that we commit when we do what God has said not to do. Sins of commission, we do what God says not to do. God says, don't get sinfully angry, and we get sinfully angry. That is a sin of commission. We've missed the mark of God's standards. God says, do not think any lustful thoughts. We think lustful thoughts. That's a sin of commission. Lying, bitterness. We can go on and on. For all the things we saw in our study of Ephesians earlier this year, those are sins of commission where we miss the mark. Another type of sins, those are sins of omission, where we do not do what God has told us to do. God has told us to forgive and to keep on forgiving and keep on forgiving. If we choose not to forgive, it's a sin of omission. We're not doing what God has called us to do. God's called us to love others like we love ourselves. When we fall short of that standard, that's a sin of omission. God's called us to love Him with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, our whole being. When we fail to do that, that's a sin of omission. We're not doing what He has said. And the reality check for us is every single one of us on a daily basis sins. Every single one of us struggles with sin. First John chapter 1, verse 8 is a verse we've heard before and talked about before, but it's an incredible reminder to us If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth 
is not in us. None of us in this room, myself included, none of us can claim sinlessness. We all struggle with sin. Why? Because we're born that way. It's the way we are born. No parent has to teach their kids to be good, has to be bad, because they think, man, my child is so good. I wish I could get them a little bit more like the world. We're born sinners. We sin because we are born sinners. We're going to see it next week in Psalm 51, but I want you to see a glance ahead to kind of set the stage. Psalm 51, verse 5. King David says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, this does not mean that she was having an adulterous relationship and got pregnant, and that, that's not what that phrase is meaning there. In sin did my mother conceive me means from the moment I was conceived, I was born with a sin nature. I was conceived with a sin nature. We inherit a sin nature. That's why no parent ever says, I have a perfect child. How to help them be more like everyone else? We're all born sinners. When we're conceived, we are sinners. We inherit a sin nature for us. And friends, even as children of God who've been rescued from our sin, we still struggle with sin. First John 1, we looked at just a minute ago, was written to believers. If any of us as believers say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. We still struggle with sin. Even the great apostle Paul, who wrote so much of our New Testament for us, in Romans 7 said, I do not do what I want to do. He calls himself a wretched man. Even the apostle Paul struggled with sin. Why do we keep struggling? Because, friends, there's a very real enemy who's constantly tempting us. There's a very real enemy who hates the glory of God and hates God's people living for him. So he's constantly bombarding us with temptation to try to get us down the wrong path. There's also a very real world around us that is opposed to God's standards and is constantly luring us towards itself. There's even a greater problem than the enemy or the world, and that's my own heart and your own heart. Because our own fleshly hearts won't the temptation the enemy throws at us, won't what the world happens, and we run after those things that are thrown at us. In fact, our sin problem is so deep, friends, we have sins we do not even know about. You think back to about a month or two ago when we were looking at Psalm 19, one of the psalms about the Word of God. In Psalm 19, verse 12, we were told, who can discern his errors? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is, nobody. I can't, you can't. Who can discern his errors? And then he says this, declare me innocent from my hidden faults. Friends, our sin nature is so deep and so real that you and I have sins that we aren't even aware of that, that a holy God sees. So for you this week, for me this week, if you think through the last seven days since we gathered here, what sins have you fallen into? What temptations have come your way that you've given into? What sins of commission? What things have you done this week that God said don't do? And this week, friends, what sins of omission have you and I committed? What things has God said to do that we have chosen not to do? That leads us to an important question. When we do what God said not to do, when we do not do what God said to do, when we sin, what are we, his children, to do about it? When God in his mercy shows us sin in our life and we realize how we've missed the mark, what do we do about it? Hence, the penitential psalms. These are psalms written to believers, to God's followers, to show them how to respond when God in his grace reminds us and shows us sin in our life. As we come to Psalm 32 this morning, we're going to see a huge distinction. Because there's two different ways... God's followers tackle sin in their life. When God shows us sin in our life, there's two different paths that we can take. And so as we read Psalm 32, be looking for the two approaches to sin in our lives as God's children and the radically different, I hate to say, consequences, but what results of us tackling sin in these two different ways. So I want us to come to Psalm 32. Can I ask you to stand, please, in honor of the reading of the Word of God? It's an amazing treasure we have that God has revealed 
himself to us and revealed this truth to us. Psalm number 32. If you're visiting, I'm reading out the English Standard Version. The words will also be up on the screen. Psalm 32. A mascal of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away, through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you in my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding. which must be curbed with bit and bridle or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that your word is living and active. We thank you that your Holy Spirit inspired this word. We thank you that your Holy Spirit is here with us to illumine your word, to help us understand your word and apply it to our lives. And Father, as one sinner right here rescued by grace with this group of friends who are also sinners rescued by grace, Lord, you know our struggles, you know our frailty, you know our sin, because it is always before you like we saw in Psalm 90. Lord, I pray today you would use your word to give us much grace and transformation to better understand what we should do in those moments when you reveal to us sin in our hearts that we might follow you in the ways you've shown us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So from Psalm 32, there's one big idea that I want you to see this morning. It's simply this. When we sin, God calls us to run to him to receive his mercy and grace. When we sin, God calls us to run to him to receive mercy and grace. Friends, we will sin. We will sin every day. We will struggle with sin. And when we do, God himself, the creator, Yahweh, the infinite one, invites us to run to him. He invites us to run to him, not to be condemned, to run to him, not to be judged, not with him shaking his head as we come running to him. He invites us to run to him because our creator who's redeemed us wants to give us mercy and grace. He's calling to us in our moments of sin to not delay, but to run right back to him. Friends, this is an amazing invitation from our creator. I pray that it'll help us battle the lies of the enemy that keep us so often hiding in our sin instead of running to the Lord. When we sin, God calls us to run to him to receive his mercy and his grace. Now, I want you to see, first of all, this is an invitation for God. This is God calling to us. So let's start with verse 8, kind of in the middle, last half of the psalm, of, of the psalm here. And so in verse number 8 here, this is God speaking here. When you look at the Hebrew tenses, the I here is no longer David. The I has shifted to God speaking. God says to David and to us, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. God himself is speaking to us. God himself is calling to us. And God is saying to his children, I will instruct you. I will teach you. I will counsel you. Those are all synonyms, meaning God will direct our path. That God is going to be very involved in showing us the way to go. And friends, this is very personal here. 
If you think about it, when we went through our study of Ephesians, almost every time we saw the word you, it was plural. Remember we said, you can translate most of the you's in Ephesians as y'all. You know, y'all do this, y'all do that. Like it was you all everywhere. This is one of the few places where you is intentionally singular. This is not to the community at large. This is God speaking to you personally and to me personally, to David personally. God is saying, I will instruct you singular. I will teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you singular here. Friends, if you're a child of God, you can read this with your name in that. I'd encourage you to just pause and read that. I will instruct you. Now stick your name right there. God's saying, I will teach you. Now put your name there in the way that you should go. God loves his children and God will instruct us and teach us and counsel us on a very personal level here. And friends, he doesn't do this begrudgingly if you're his child. You know, the very last phrase of verse 8. He says, I will counsel you, now stick your name there, with my eye upon you. With my eye upon you is an expression for personal care and attention. The God who spoke in a billion trillion stars came into existence is the God who is watching you with compassion with concern and with love because he made you and he cares about you. Just like we saw in Psalm 1, he delights in giving grace. Now in Psalm 32, he delights in instructing you. God delights in teaching you. God delights in counseling you. And in the context of Psalm 32, in particular, God delights in showing you what to do when you sin. With his eye upon you, with care and concern, Not begrudgingly, he sees you in your sin, and he now delights in calling to you to tell you what to do when you have fallen short. And what does God tell us as his children to do when we fall short? He tells us to run immediately back to him. He tells us to run immediately back to him. And he has to call us to do this because, friends, that's not what we are prone to do. What is our default reaction when we sin? Well, think back to Genesis 3, with the first temptation of the first sin. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, Adam and Eve have disobeyed God. He told them to do something they have not done. They had a sin of, of commission. They committed something, they did something that God said not to do. And so what happens here? And they, Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the, in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man is like, what's the next word? What did they do when they sinned? They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. Now, can you picture this? God is everywhere. God sees everything. And here's Adam and Eve behind a bush somewhere going, I hope God doesn't see me back here. Like, I mean, how foolish this is that they are running, hiding behind a bush, hoping that the Almighty, when who spoke the world into being, who spoke them into being, they've had fellowship, hoping he doesn't see them hovering behind that bush. Go into verse 10 in that same passage there. God speaks to them and says, and asks them what happened. And they said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. And so I did What? I hid myself. So again, our default reaction going back to Adam and Eve is when we have fallen short of God's standard, we try to go hide behind that bush like Adam and Eve did. And that is what David does here as well. Go back to Psalm number 32 and look at verse 3. David launches into a personal testimony in his life. He says, for when I, now this is personal for David. He's telling us in his life at some point. We don't know the situation, but in some situations, when I kept silent. David's saying, there was some time that I had sin in my life, and I did just like Adam and Eve. I kept silent. I didn't do it. I tried to hide behind that bush, so to speak. I did not run to God in the moment here. And friends, when we do that, God gives us a very vivid picture of what it was like for David to be silent and not deal with the sin, for Adam and Eve to hide behind that bush. And when you and I 
or see sin in our life and we don't talk to God about it, verse 9 shows us what we are like in that moment. And basically what we're like is we're stupid. Now, that's not my words. That's the imagery of King David and the Lord here. Verse 9 here. This is now God speaking. God just said he will instruct us. Now, the God says this. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and brittle or bridle, or it may not stay near you. Friends, when we do not run back to God when we sin, when we hide behind the bush like Adam and Eve, when we don't deal with our sin, when like King David we keep silent and don't talk to God about it, he says we're basically like an unintelligent farm animal at that point. That when Adam and Eve hide behind the bush, it's like them being like a mule. When King David doesn't talk to God about his sin, he's being like a mule. And friends, when you and I have sin in our life and we don't run right back to God, we are like a mule in the farmyard at that point. If you haven't been around mules, they're not very smart. Get the image of the farmer's getting his animals in because there's a tornado coming or a lightning storm coming or hail or some danger coming. And he goes to that mule and he starts pulling on the mule. That mule just digs his heels in. It's not about to go anywhere. And just stays put. That's the image for us of what we are like when we choose not to run right back to our Creator when we offended Him in our sin. But God loves us so much if we're His children. He doesn't let us stay there. God doesn't let us stay hiding behind that bush. God doesn't let us stay silent about our sin. God doesn't leave us like the mule in the pasture just to get struck by the hail and the lightning. Think about that farmer. When he has that mule he cares about for some reason that's not coming in a lightning storm, he will drag it kicking and screaming back to the barn. He may have to tie it to his truck and pull it across the pasture, but he's going to get his animal back in to the barn. And God loves us so much that if we do not deal with our sin, if we hide in our sin and try to avoid it, he will get our attention. Look back at verse 3 of Psalm 32 here. This is David's testimony again. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Now, this is poetry, this imagery. He didn't have bone cancer. His bones weren't deteriorating. He didn't have osteoporosis here. That's not what he's saying here. When he says, my bones wasted away, it was an image in poetic language here for meaning he was in agony. He felt like a crushing weight upon him. His soul was in turmoil. He was struggling greatly here. And look at the end of verse 4, the last line of verse 4. He says, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. And friends, we can get this image right now because it's been 100 degrees and we're in a drought. Everything is drying up in the heat of summer. He's saying, my strength, my joy is all gone in the heat of what I'm feeling here. Why is David suffering like this? He's suffering this because God is, in, is afflicting him with this. Look at verse 4 here, what he says at the beginning. For day and night, your hand, God, your hand was heavy upon me. Now let that sink in because we, we run away from the idea of discipline. We don't like verses like this. But it's good for us, friends. David was a man after God's own heart. He was the king. God had anointed him and put him in this position. But whatever the situation was, he had sin in his life and he didn't run right back to God. He said, I kept silent. And so God puts his hand upon David. And David's crying out here that his feels like his bones are wasting away. It feels like he's being dried up in the heat of summer. God is afflicting him. God is disciplining him. And friends, it is for David's good that God does this to him. In our culture, we only think about God as love, God as love. And yes, God is love, but God loves us so much, he won't let us be that mule in the pasture in the lightning storm. He will drag us kicking and screaming back to the barn. And if we do not deal with our sin, God in his love will bring it to our attention. We've seen this before, but it bears mentioning again. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6. This beautiful text about God's discipline for us. In Hebrews 12, 6, it tells us, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. 
Friends, what God inflicted on David here came out of his love. It's not an either or. God in his love does not enable us to keep on sinning. God in his love disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son he receives. We're told in verses 10 and 11 of that same chapter of Hebrews more of what this looks like. For they, our earthly parents, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us for what? Our what? Our good. Wait, wait. God disciplines us for what? Our good, that we may share his holiness. And then in the very next verse there in Hebrews 12, 11, it says, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Duh. I mean, David was not enjoying having the hand of God upon him. David was not enjoying feeling like his bones were being crushed. He didn't feel like he was enjoying the heat of summer drying him up. Discipline seems painful, but it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God loves us so much, and he so wants our lives to glorify him that he will teach us, and he will teach us by disciplining us if we continue hiding our sin, if we continue to not run to him when we sin. That's the beauty of Psalm 32 here. This is why God is speaking to us, because it doesn't have to get to that point, friends. There's another path we can run down besides being the mule in the pasture without understanding, fighting against God, going, I don't want to go there. He invites us, he calls us to do something instead. And look at the easier path, if you will. Look at verse 6. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. He invites us to, instead of hiding in our sin, when we sin, to run right back to him. Let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you. And we're doing it right away. It says, when you may be found. That's an imagery from Isaiah of turning to God while there's the opportunity. When the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, that's the opportunity. That's the time right then and there to run right back to God. That's the last image here as well that seems a little bit strange. So surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. What in the world is he saying? He just said, go pray to God, but they're not going to reach him. There's an image for urgency as well. Think back to Psalm 23 when we talked about that. The Lord is my shepherd. We talked about walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Now, at the time in the landscape, the valleys were called wadis. They were these very narrow pastures with high cliffs on either side. If you remember from Psalm 23, to get to the green pasture, sometimes you had to walk through these dark, narrow canyons where you couldn't see what dangers awaited you. Now, as you walked through those, you had to walk through when it was dry because when the storms came, all the water came down the walls of those canyons, the walls of those wadis, and they would flood quickly through there, and what was passable becomes impassable. So what this image here is, is he's saying, while you see the path to run back to God, go run down it right now. Don't wait till the waters have come and the time is not right. Today, while it's now, in the sense of urgency, run back to God. Friends, when we sin, God tells us, don't delay, don't wait, you don't need time. Run back to Him immediately. When we run back to Him, what do we say? We don't make excuses. We don't blame it. We don't justify it. What do we do? We look at verse 5. This is what the prayer should be when God shows us sin in our life. He says, I not, this is David speaking now, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. What do we do? We acknowledge, not cover, say, and confess. There's four different verbs that tell us the same thing. We talk to God about our sin. Not making excuses, but we go to God honest about it. And friends, we go to God about it. There's this false idea floating around today that we somehow need to forgive ourselves. You realize in the Bible we're never called to forgive ourselves for things we've done wrong. Because we've not offended ourselves, we've offended God. It's not our standard we've broken, it's God's standard we've broken. 
And so we're supposed to go talk to God and God alone about our sin here, to acknowledge our sin to him, to not hide it, to say it to him, to confess it to him. And look back in verse 2 here of Psalm 32. It gives us a little bit more insight about going to God. It said, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. Notice it means we're honest. It means we go to God honest about our sin. We go to God with no pretense. We go to God saying, God, I have offended you. I have sinned against you. God, my heart is breaking because I've sinned against you. And we're honest with God, confessing our sin with an undivided heart that longs to be right with God. And friends, when we sin, God's inviting us to run to Him, being honest about our sin, confessing it to Him. And when we do that, something amazing happens. God gives us mercy and grace. He gives us two things when we run back to him. Instead of us hiding behind the bushes, having to be drug across the pasture to get our attention, if we will just run to God when we sin, being honest with God without deceit, being real with God about our struggles and crying out in confession of sin to him, he gives us two things. He gives us mercy and he gives us grace. Now, first of all, what is mercy? Mercy, quite simply, is not getting what we deserve. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. So, hypothetical situation here, okay? After church day, you're really, really hungry. And so you're flying down Bell Road at 75 miles an hour. Please don't do this. To get to the restaurant. As you're going down 75, a policeman pulls you over. You obviously get a huge citation for reckless driving going down Bell Road at 75 miles an hour. You go to the courtroom, and the judge tells you whatever massive fine you're going to have to pay. But he goes, you know, I'm going to give you mercy day. It has to be paid, so I'm going to pay it myself. You can go free. That's mercy. You don't deserve that. You deserve that massive fine for reckless driving on your way to your buffet after church. But instead, the judge gives you mercy. He pays the fine himself so you can go free. That's a small picture of what our creator, the just judge, does for us. Go back to verse 5 here. I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. God gives us forgiveness for all of our sins. He forgives us. He does not give us what we deserve. That is mercy. And verses 1 and 2 go back to them, give us a bigger picture of what this forgiveness looks like. There's three different words that describe our forgiveness. Go back in verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Second of all, whose sin is covered. And then in verse 3, blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. He says we're forgiven. Our guilt is taken care of. He's removed it from us. We're covered. Covering doesn't mean it's hidden. Because often we think of covering something like with a blanket. Covering here means that debt has been paid. I don't know if you've ever been out with a friend at a restaurant like, hey, I'll cover your ticket for you. Maybe I'll, hey, I'll cover the admission fee for you. That's the idea of covering here. We're paying what someone else owes. So our sin has been forgiven. The guilt is done away. We're covered. The debt has been paid. Therefore, he can say there in verse 2 that the Lord counts no iniquity. He no longer holds it against us. Now, that raises the big question, how is that possible? How can a holy God who can overlook no sin... Look at me and my sin and you and your sin and go, your guilt's taken care of. I'm going to cover the debt myself and I'm not going to hold it against you. How is that possible? That's what we were just singing about earlier in the service. Romans chapter 4. I want you to see verses 7 and 8 on the screen. See if this doesn't sound familiar. Now, this is Romans here, not Psalm 32, okay? Romans 4, 7. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. Sounding familiar yet? And whose sins are covered. Now, verse 8. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Sound a little bit familiar? This is Psalm 32 now being quoted by Paul in Romans 4. What is Paul doing here? He's showing us how this forgiveness is possible. In the verses that follow, he looks at the example of Abraham to explain how forgiveness comes. And he culminates with this, verse 23 of Romans chapter 4. 
But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord. Then verse 25, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The way Psalm 32 is possible is because God himself comes. The debt has to be paid. Either we pay it or there has to be a perfect sacrifice. And there is no perfect sacrifice apart from God himself. So the just judge comes, is born of a virgin, lives a perfect life to to fulfill the law, so he can go as an innocent sacrifice, die on a cruel Roman cross for our justification, so that we can be made right with God. So all of our trespasses, sins, iniquities, whatever words you want to use, are put upon him. So when Christ cries out, it is finished on the cross, all of the debt that we should have had to pay was paid for by Christ. All the wrath we should have absorbed was put on Christ. He was a sacrifice. Friends, that is mercy. We deserve judgment, but Christ takes it for us so we do not have to get what we deserve. And we run back to God, crying out for confession of our sins. God gives us mercy. There's something else God gives us that's even more amazing. He also gives us grace. Now, what is grace? Grace is getting what we do not deserve. So mercy is not getting what I do deserve, the punishment for my sin. Grace is getting things I do not deserve to get. We talked about grace back in Psalm 1 is kindness given to undeserving people. So let's go back to our hypothetical situation. You're really hungry, so you're speeding 75 miles an hour on the way to the buffet after church today, okay? The policeman pulls you over, you get reckless driving, you go to court. The judge says, I'm going to be merciful, I'm going to give you, I'm going to forgive your debt, I'm going to pay for it myself, and he wipes it clean. But then he walks up to you on the way and goes, you know, God bless you, have a good day, here's $1,000. That's grace. You didn't deserve that. You deserve to have this massive fine for reckless driving. Instead, now the, the judge has paid it, and he's giving you $1,000 just to bless you and have a good day. Friends, that is grace when you get things far beyond anything you deserve. And that is what God does. When we run back to him in our sin and our struggles as children, he's not sitting there shaking his head at us. He's giving us forgiveness. He's giving us mercy, but he gives us so much more. Look at verse 7 here. David's describing what God is to him in this moment when he deals with his sin. He says, You, God, are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Because these are all images that God gives us his presence. This doesn't mean that life's going to be easy. We've seen that all throughout the Psalms. Life is hard. This is not a promise that every problem will go away. But it is a promise that God is our hiding place, that he will be the one to keep us in his peace no matter what troubles that we walk through. He's giving us his presence. Friends, when we run back to God as his children after we've sinned, we're not shunned from him. He invites us to come sit down at his table and feast at his banquet. So we sing about some once your enemy now seated at your table. We are forever seated at his table. We don't deserve that. That's grace. But he does even more. Look back at verse 8 that we looked at at the beginning. God speaking here says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. God says, run back to me when you've fallen short. I know you've fallen short. Come back to me. Confess your sin. I will give you mercy. I will forgive your sin. But guess what? I will give you my presence. And even more, I'll keep teaching you. I'll keep my eye upon you. I'll keep loving you. I'll keep guiding you. I will keep directing you. Friends, the creator who knows all things, who's omniscient, all-knowing, says, let me teach you. And this grace he gives us not just a little grace. It's a lot of grace. Remember the Gospel of John way back a year and a half or so ago, two years ago? In John chapter 1, one of my favorite phrases in all the Bible, says, from him we receive grace upon grace. I love that expression because, friends, we don't need a little grace. We need a lot of grace. 
And God is generous. He gives lots and lots of grace upon grace upon grace. And that's what King David is describing for us here, just with different language. Look at verse 10. It says, Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love lightly touches the one who trusts in the Lord. Steadfast love does what to us? What's steadfast love do to us? Surrounds us. This is grace upon grace. God says, okay, you've run back to me. You've confessed your sin. I'm going to forgive your sin, and I'm going to give you my steadfast love, my covenantal love, my unchanging love. You have my presence, and I will surround you with my presence and with my love. And this idea of grace upon grace is even in the very first verse. Go back to verse 1 of Psalm 32. This word blessed, it's so easy to skip over this. But if you remember back to Psalm 1 when we saw this before, the word blessed in the Hebrew is plural. I don't know the best way to render that in English, but you could say much blessed upon, much blessed upon, much blessed upon, much blessed. Like there's the idea of plural blessings, plural joy, plural happiness, plural receiving blessings from God. Not like a little blessed, but this is blessed upon, blessed upon, blessed. This is the one whose transgression is forgiven. God blesses us with grace upon grace upon grace. Friends, when we sin... God calls us to not hide behind the bush, to not be the stubborn mule refusing to run back to his master, but to run to him with eagerness. Even though we sin, to run back to the the one we've offended in our sin, to run back to him, confess our sin, acknowledge it, have no deceit, but to be honest with God about our shortcomings. And he will give us mercy and forgive us, and he will give us grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. And friends, when we realize what he's given us, Versus what we deserve. Look at what happens to us when we realize what he does when we run back to him. Look at verse 11. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Friends, when we understand what we deserve, we understand our symptoms, when we understand the holiness and the bigness of God and the glory of God, and we realize he calls us to run to him, not for him to shake his head at us and scold us, for us to run to him to receive mercy And grace, when our hearts get that, friends, how can we help but be glad in the Lord? How can we help but rejoice? How can we help but shout for joy when we realize that we who have offended the Holy God have been invited to run back and to receive mercy and grace? It was not on the screen. I hope you'll keep looking because CJ preached for us Psalm 33. Notice how these are intentionally put together here. Verse 11, talking about our response to being forgiven. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Now, 33.1, shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord. These psalms are pushed back to back because our worship of God is an overflow of us realizing how amazing he is and what we have and being invited into his presence. Friends, what an invitation we have. So, friends, why? Why, when we sin, do we sit on it ourselves? and not talk to God about it. We've been invited by our Creator to run to Him with honest confession, honest dealing with our sin, to receive mercy and grace. Why do we sit around thinking, well, I've already confessed that a hundred times. God doesn't want to hear from me again. Why do we sit there thinking, well, I just need to feel sorry a little while before I go talk to God about it. What are all the excuses the enemy pours out us that keeps us from running back to God? The moment we realize we've sinned, why do we feel like we need some space, some time, whatever other thing, When God's saying, right now, while there's time, immediately run back to me. So I want to ask you, back to one of the opening questions. This last week, what sins did you commit? What sins did I commit? What sins of commission? What sins of omission did we commit? When the Holy Spirit, in His kindness to us, showed us that we have fallen short of God's standard, do we feel like we had to wallow in our sin a little while first? Do we feel like we had to wallow in self-pity? 
we feel like we need time or space to deal with it? Do we, do we feel like, oh, God doesn't want to hear from me again? I've fallen this over and over again. Or did we this last week, when we realized we fell short, did we run right back to Jesus? Did we run right back knowing that he was standing there with open arms to say, my child, come back. I will forgive you, and I will give you grace upon grace upon grace. And friends, with that said, we also need to ask, are there ongoing sins in your life, in my life? We call these strongholds, sins that we keep falling to over and over and over again, that we need to run back to God on. Run back to God to receive mercy and grace and to find fresh strength from Him, not in our own strength, to overcome those things that He wants us to overcome. Friends, I also need to ask, are you one that God is having to discipline? You've not been dealing with sin in your life. There's some stronghold in your life that you have not been dealing with. And there's every excuse in the world's eyes of why you can't do what God said to do or why you're not, why you think you cannot follow God in that path he has said. Is God going to have to treat you like that mule we read about? Is he going to have to discipline you like a parent disciplines his child to get your attention? Or will you respond to his invitation to run back to him right now in repentance? And friends, when we run back to God in repentance, we don't make excuses. We go to God with brokenness in our heart and we go to God saying, God, change me. Confession of sin is not an excuse so I can get forgiveness so I can do it again. Confession of sin is I run to God to receive his transformation, not only his forgiveness, but his transformation as well. Friends, are you confident you are a child of God? That you know he loves you so much that he's not going to leave you lost in your sin? Are you experiencing his grace upon grace upon grace that calls you back to him when you fall short? And do you experience the joy of that forgiveness? Can you say this week that even though you and I have fallen short this week, we can still, with a, with a clear conscience before the Lord, because of what God has done for us, not anything else, that we can say this morning, I am glad in the Lord. I will rejoice. I will shout for joy because I am forgiven. Would you pray with me, friends? Father, we are so thankful for your love for us that goes beyond anything we can even fathom. Lord Jesus. You see our sins. You see the sins of our thoughts and our attitudes, our words, our emotions that, Lord, no one else sees. And yet, Lord, as your children, you look upon us and you invite us to run back to you. You invite us to run back to you, not so we can keep living in our sin. God, you invite us to run back to you so we can see you in your beauty and glory, so we can see the goodness of being in your presence, so we can be convicted of our sins and find mercy and find grace for today. And Lord, I pray for myself and each of these precious brothers and sisters that, God, that you would renew our sense of awe at what you have done for us. God, we could never, ever get to you. Yet you have come to us and you have made a way. Lord Jesus, you died a cruel death so that we could be justified and forgiven of our sins. You've transformed us and you're making us more and more like you. God, you're at work in our lives. Lord, would you help us be in awe of the fact that our creator has redeemed us. God, give us awareness this week of our sins, not for a place to lead us just to despair, just brokenness for brokenness sake, but would you this week, and your kindness to us like you did with King David, would you this week, Lord, run after each one of us? Would your Holy Spirit convict us of perhaps some of those sins in our lives that we're not even aware of? And God, I pray as we feel your conviction, we won't run hide behind the bush like Adam and Eve did. We won't keep silent like King David did. But God, we will see you with arms open wide, inviting us to run back to your throne of grace, to find mercy and grace to help in our time of need. And in my heart and the heart of these precious brothers and sisters this week, I pray, Lord, we be a people who are quick to confess our sins to you and quick to rejoice in the forgiveness you've given us, quick to see your grace in our lives and quick to praise you in response. Lord, how can we not help but open our mouths and praise when we realize all that you've done for us? Or make us a worshipful people this week as we understand more and more, God, of your mercy and your grace. 
and we give you all the praise. We ask it in Jesus' name. Now, before we stand, friends, I just want to encourage you, if the Lord convicts you of sin in your life that you need to deal with, don't keep running. Whether it's a fresh sin or a stronghold of sin, you can deal with it with the Lord alone. But God has given you people here who love you and care about you. And one of the grace gifts God gives to the church is the ability to confess our sins one to another. In particular, here at Gateway, you have 10 elders, we call our pastoral leadership team here, who love to pray for you. I wish you could hear the way these brothers pray over you when we meet every other Wednesday morning. We are just we work through the membership roster and we pray over each family, each person in this church. And if you could hear the way they talk to the Lord about you and your needs and your life, you'll be blessed to hear that. And these brothers are around. If you want someone to pray with you, you have a sin stronghold that you've been fighting on your own, I'd encourage you to run to one of these guys and ask them to pray for it. If there's a sin that you've been hiding and not dealing with, run to one of them and say, I, I need to run to God. Would you pray for me as I run to the Lord to receive mercy and grace? I know not all of you know who our elders are. Can I get the elders to stand up real quick so you know who they are? So elder team, would you guys stand up real quick? I know you're scattered around the room. You see you're here, Jeremy. you got John back there. I see Robbie back there. So you got you got Drew back there and a few of the guys in the room right now. If you need someone to pray with while we're singing or after service, find one of these brothers. They would love to talk to you and pray with you in this journey as you run back to the Lord. And for all of us this week, I pray that what we're about to sing will be true for us, that we'll be glad in the Lord as we think about all that he has done for us. So would you stand as we sing our closing psalm this morning?